0: What are you reading now, and what have you read in the past? How do the things you've read in the past help you better understand what you're reading today, or in the future for that matter, and what if it wasn't just what you read, but what you listened to or watched, and hey, what if this could be shared with lots of folks? Welcome to That Reminds Me.
1: This is episode 4 of That Reminds Me. Neha Chaudhary joined Adish Khanna and Ashish Kulkarni to discuss two historical novels set in Mumbai. The first, A Murder on Malabar Hill by Sujata Massey is set in the 1920s and the second, Milk Teeth by Amrita Mahale is set in the second half of the 1990s. Neha, Ashish and Adish discuss the importance of sidekicks to detectives, the state of family law in the early 20th century and why Despite all the enthusiasm it displays for cities in other episodes, Adish wasn't too happy about a book that devoted a lot of attention to property development. We tried to not give away too much of the plot, but it wasn't possible with Milk Peeth. So if you're planning to read the book and would like to avoid spoilers, you may want to give the second half of this episode a miss. Good afternoon, Adish, and good afternoon, Neha. Good afternoon,
0: Ashish and good afternoon, Neha.
2: Hi, hello, hello both of you.
1: And welcome to the podcast.
2: Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to see where this goes.
1: <laughs> it usually tends to go but in circles, but Adish and I have a blast going around in those circles, so we hope you'll enjoy being part of the ride as well.
2: <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to it, guys. Like I said, like I said on chat as well, as long as we're not discussing work, as long as we're not talking about the virus... I'm I'm
1: game. <laughs> I'm completely on board with that, as I'm sure is Adish. Uh, absolutely. All right. Uh, Adish, not just for the benefit of the audience, but also partially for me as well. Uh, I know very little about Neha, and I'm sure Neha knows very little about me. But since you happen to know both of us relatively well, why don't you explain to each of us about, about the other person so that the audience also gets a clue in about who Neha is and what we're going to speak about today?
0: Uh, right. Neha Ashish is an economics professor who uh, uplifts young undergrads and uh, runs many podcasts. And Ashish Neha is a lawyer whom I knew through a whole bu- uh, bunch of mutual friends, which is mm-hmm. also uh, how I can explain my connection with you, except in our case, my the mutual friend is my wife. Oh,
1: and, uh, right. Oh. Okay, so Serendipity has raised its head again. Aniha, Shivani and I went to college together over here in Pune, which is how I know Shivani. Oh, wow. Damn
2: cool. Yeah. Damn cool.
1: So, in a sense, Adis, that kind of makes you the stranger on this call. Uh, the
0: the stranger, the person who's not from Pune, the, the person whose roots don't go back to the West Coast. Uh, I am very much an inland minority over here. Uh, but on the bright side we are going to be talking about two uh, books which are about Mumbai and none of us are uh, from Mumbai so we all go into this at the same relative disadvantage I suppose
2: well I think I am a little bit from Bombay because my parents were born and raised there Um, I was born there. I moved to Bangalore when I was very, very young. But uh, Bombay has been one of those. um, I was I was actually thinking about this when I was reading uh, Milk Teeth, in fact, much more than uh, much more than uh, Murdo and Malabar Hill, about how Bombay is one of those almost cities that you're super familiar with, despite not having actually lived there for long stretches of time. But it's just that you've spent so much time there over the years that it's it's still home in a manner of speaking. My mother's family, uh, my aunts, my uncles, my grandfather, a whole host of people and relatives in Bombay. So, yeah, I mean, different ways, I think, to call a city home. And Bombay is my, Bombay is one of them.
1: I stayed for about four years in Bombay, but I confess, well, confess the wrong word. I shout this on the rooftops. I never grew to like the place. And Bombay for me is best visited in the morning and left alone in the evening.
2: i <laughs>
0: I think I've had one two month stint, one four-month stint and one half year stint. Hmm.
1: And how did you like the place, Artist?
0: I thoroughly enjoyed it for different aspects. I think it's a place which I would find very difficult to make home, but it's also a place where if I was forced to make it home I'd have a lot of fun trying.
2: Really, I I can't imagine um Bombay being home. I don't know. It just feels very hard um to. It just feels like there's a lot that you're up against to, to, to make Bombay to make Bombay home. And I don't know if it makes sense um you know just just the sheer sort of economics of it. If you had a choice, the amount of money that you'd pay versus the kind of quality of life that you'd get, especially if you didn't have um, especially if you were paying like rent or something of the sort, it I just yeah so, somehow it just doesn't feature in my in my list of Indian cities that I'd like to that I'd like to li- like to live in long term.
0: We are wandering into personal anecdotes, but uh, <laughs> while while we are at it, I, I think I was at Mumbai at a time of life where uh, I was what 26 perhaps 25 26 and it was a time of life where if you f- had been having a bad day at work and at 5:30 you messaged four or five people and asked them if they wanted to dinner you'd get uh, responses by six and those responses would be positive so w- which is something I've missed a lot in most places I've lived since then
1: Right. We'll weave those personal anecdotes in and out of our conversation as we go along, I'm sure. And Adish, you and I are more than practiced at it uh, by now. But uh, you also spoke about how towards the earlier the call, uh, earlier part of the call, you referred to yourself as a minority in this uh, conversation that we're having today, which is actually a good way to segue into the first book, uh, Murder on Malabar Hill by Sujata Massey. And we'll come to what the book is and we'll come to how I chanced upon the book and how each of us chanced upon the book in just a little while. But the book is really about minorities in Bombay, is one way of thinking about it, right?
0: I think we should probably step back even further and mention the books we are going to talk about today.
1: Not a bad plan at all. So why don't you do the honors?
0: Yeah, we are going to talk about a book called The Murders on Malabar Hill, also known as The Widows of Malabar Hill by Sujata Massey, which is a murder mystery. And what makes this interesting is that it's a murder mystery set in, if I remember right, 1920s Mumbai. Yep. And once we're done with that, we'll go on to another Mumbai book, Milk Teeth by Amrita Mahale. And interestingly enough, both of these are writers who are not from Mumbai themselves and who've still written Mumbai books. And Milk Teeth is also set in... A historical period of Mumbai, except a much closer historical period, about 1997, again, if I remember right, but we'll call it 1997 plus or minus three years.
1: As a statistician, I heartily approve. (laughs) All right, so let's get started with the first of these. So like I said, the book, one way of thinking about it is it's about minority communities based in Bombay, but it's not about minorities per se, but it really is about a young lady called Parveen Mistri, who is a lawyer and uh, if I remember correctly, one of Mumbai's first or India's first uh, female lawyers and how she ends up solving a series of, well not series, one major mystery that is set in Malabar Hill. Uh,
0: and it's probably relevant to mention that Neha is one of India's most recent women lawyers. So, we have the entire time spectrum covered.
2: (laughs) Not so recent anymore, but sure, yeah. Compared to the 1920s, I think think recent, yeah. All right. So, why don't we
1: begin by talking about how we chanced upon the book. In my case, I read a column written by... I think it was TCA Srinivas Raghavan in Business Standard and who he chanced upon the book uh, at his sister's place, if I remember correctly. And he tends to not mince words. When he said he really liked reading this book, I decided to go ahead and buy it. Eventually started reading it and I thoroughly enjoyed reading it. It was a light read and helped me understand a lot about Parsi and Muslim communities back in the day in Bombay and also helped me understand Bombay a little bit better.
0: Let's move on to Neha.
2: I think for me, it was the cafe total uh, or the full circle bookstore in in Khan Market in Delhi. I was browsing. I don't know why I landed up there. It's one of the favorite uh, bookshops in Delhi for me. And um, I landed up there. I was looking around. I was looking for a bunch of things. And um, I happened to ask uh, the guy behind the counter if he had some new fun reads that had landed up. And this was one of the books he pointed me to. It seemed like a a legal novel. The premise seemed interesting. Woman lawyer in the 1920s. Um, Yeah, book set in Bombay. I think in my head, it ticked a lot of the the boxes for what could be an interesting book. And um, that was, I read it, I think at a time in life when I was trying more consciously to read more women authors. And that was another box ticked and yeah i quite i quite enjoyed it what about you Adish?
0: well i was independently recommended this book by you and by ashish <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah right.
1: excellent uh so uh, neha before i forget uh, I don't know if you follow this guy on Twitter or not called, uh, I want to say Vivek Tejuja, but I'm butcher name so badly that I'm sure. Oh, excellent. Okay. It is Vivek Tejuja. And he had recently come up with a list of his favorite hundred works of Indian fiction written by Indian women.
2: Oh, that's awesome. I'm going to look
1: him up. Yes. Yeah. Can you just share the
2: link? Yes, of course. And
1: for the benefit of the audience, we'll put it up in the show notes as well. But I'm, planning on working slowly but surely through that list myself in the later part of this year. Fingers crossed it will happen.
2: I know, I know. Fingers crossed too. (laughs) This sounds very exciting.
1: (laughs) All right. So, Adishti, I noticed uh, in the post that you have up about this particular book, you spoke about how the book can be interpreted either as a portrait of uh, Bombay or the Jazz Age. Now, when I was reading the book, I didn't quite think of it that way. But now that I reflect on what you've written, it actually kind of makes sense. Would you mind explaining or elaborating on what you meant by the Jazz Age though?
0: The Jazz Age is the the period between the First World War and the Great Depression, where jazz was the dominant form of music. And this... Uh, there's a fantastic book which unfortunately I haven't read but not that that's ever stopped us before about <laughs> the jazz age in Mumbai called Taj Mahal Foxtrot Oh, Naresh so, Fernandez, of course, of course So, it's it's one of those books which you keep hearing about and because of that a certain awareness of, the, uh, of Bombay's jazz age does f- filter in but it, I, I've never read it uh, myself
1: I have actually a pretty horrific story about it. I picked it up to read on a flight. I got in the flight, started reading the book, fell asleep, and then forgot the book in the flight itself.
0: From what you did read, uh, what can you remember?
1: Next to nothing because I fell asleep in the first couple of pages. But if Naresh Fernandes ever gets around to hearing this podcast, it wasn't because of the quality of the writing. I just hadn't got a lot of sleep the previous day.
0: Okay, but uh, to, let's drag ourselves back to topic. <laughs> yes. Uh, Taj Mahal Foxtrot had made me aware that there was jazz age in Mumbai. We are digressing again. So let's That's just say quite- that this is a, a portrait of that time in Mumbai, interwar, not quite Great Depression yet, where the independence movement is heating up, the number mm-hmm. of Indian rich or Indian middle class or the Indian professional class is growing. Bombay is growing very rapidly and putting up all kinds of new architecture and new social venues and we have this very interesting murder mystery that has been propped right into it.
1: So the thing that uh, confused me uh, about When you mention the Jazz Age is, to me the canonical novel, although it's been years and years since I've read it, it's of course a Great Gatsby for America. And there's a lovely movie made by uh, Woody Allen about Paris in that era. I can't for the life of me remember the name of the movie. But the portrait of Bombay during that period is very different from the portrait of what you might imagine Paris or America to be like at that point of time. Neha, did reading the book strike you as a representation of the Jazz Age?
2: I'm not so sure actually and I think the movie that you're talking about is Midnight in Paris but I could yes, be wrong. Yeah. yeah,
1: correct correct that's the
2: one. I don't know actually but maybe I was also reading the book from a completely different lens. Um I mean I I'm I'm a woman lawyer reading a book about a woman lawyer so I wasn't reading it as much as a book about Bombay. I think mm. to me Bombay was a uh, was a sort of background character. It was very much present, but I think it was a lot more about the protagonist, the legal questions that tend to entwine her personal life when she's trying to separate from her husband, trying to divorce her husband, which I don't think she's able to do, this murder mystery entwined with like an inheritance battle um, happening happening on the side. And it was, it was fairly interesting because it's not, I'm not a family lawyer, so I actually had to <laughs> scratch my family law rusted cells think back to like many many (laughs) years ago um my my family law lessons in law school so yeah i bombay wasn't really um as much a focal point for me as i imagine it was for for adisht but yeah what
0: about you you, no no to be honest i found the murder mystery much more interesting than the uh, bombay portrait myself i found the uh, murder mystery much more interesting than the 1920s portrait itself though the family law uh, aspects of the 1920s were very interesting and I think you you found those interesting too but they were there for me. I'm beginning to kind of feel as if this is the six blind men and the elephant
1: because uh, Neha you approach this book more from a legal or a lawyerly point of view others you seem to have enjoyed the mystery part of it but I'm really missing Amba a previous guest right now because What I liked the most about the book was the description of the food that they ate. And safe to say that intermittent fasting wasn't really (laughs) top of the list for these guys.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Lots and lots of good food conversation.
1: Yeah. And they seem to be eating every single chance they get. I thoroughly enjoyed that part.
2: They seem to be eating as well. I mean, lots of good food.
0: I should mention that I started reading this uh, book just after lockdown started and reading all the descriptions of Parsi food while completely unable to get Parsi food was probably the worst aspect of this book for me.
1: <laughs> I can imagine. I'm sorry for bringing up repressed memories at
0: now, you have a
1: point over here that uh, my wife in particular would enjoy uh, hearing us speak about, and I use the word enjoy in the broadest sense of the term. Neha, the context is my I'm married to a Bengali, and the oh. point that I'm referring to is Adi saying that the moral I'm choosing to draw from this book is that Calcutta is so vile that it turns even Parsi's evil.
2: Huh? For the,
1: yeah. sake of my wife, and for the sake mm-hmm. of every single Bengali listening to this, please do elaborate.
0: I think that since Neha enjoyed the uh, personal story of Parveen Mistry the most, uh, may- maybe she should elaborate.
2: <laughs> okay, so it's it's been a while since I read the book. But if I remember correctly, uh, Parveen marries this gentleman called Cyrus. I think Sodawala was his surname. And I, I think what emerges uh, from the book is that uh, well? Parveen is from a well-to-do family, her her father is a very successful lawyer based in Bombay. And I think the marriage was also motivated by economic reasons. She has a really hard time. Uh, she tries to get back to college, but I don't think she's able to complete her education there, uh, there fully. There's a lot of underlying tension between, between her and her in-laws, her husband. I think begins to have an affair at some point of time, or like a series of of, um, of affairs she's treated um extremely poorly when she's on her period uh, there's a separate room that they've created of some sort and she's not allowed to come out of that room i think all of her all of her food is delivered to her and things like that and her she expects her husband to stand up to his parents and be on her side and i don't think any of that happens until finally she decides well enough is enough and i need to i need to get out of this marriage and and even then the only thing that she's able to obtain is a separation and I think there was some physical violence uh, when she goes to the factory and I think she catches him, I think that's when I think she decides enough is enough, and I have to get out of this.
0: Along with everything that you just said, I'd add that it's not just that purvye mystery is much more uh, well-to- do or that her or that the mystery family is much more well-to- do than her husband's family, because her husband does marry her, seeking money. But the mystery family is also much more liberal and less orthodox religious than the Soda uh, Wala family. Yeah, and yeah. this is what is driving the Soda Wala family to be so both uncomfortable with the idea of her going back to college in Calcutta, as also how they force her into this uh, secluded room when she's on her period and how they keep pushing her to... Uh, have a child there is a rather prevalent stereotype of parsis as the liberalizing edge of indian society this really shows that uh, there was a very regressive streak among the parsis as well which perhaps is still there and we just don't know about it but given that I've had so many unhappy experiences with Calcutta, I'm choosing to believe that it was the influence of Calcutta which turned the, <laughs> this particular Parsi family so regressive.
2: You know, I haven't been to Calcutta too many times, but I did go fairly recently, I want to say Feb, Jan, Feb, I was in Calcutta, and I really, really enjoyed my stay, Adisht. I mean, I was, I was glad to be back in the city. It had been many, many years, but uh, it was a very nice four days, I think, that I spent there.
0: I was there for just under a day or maybe just above a day in February myself. That visit had all the usual Calcutta weirdness, including transportation, seeing how hypochondriac Calcutta is as a city, and all the usual suspects. It it was still much better than my previous visit, where there was no uh, mobile network for my entire three days there. (laughs) You
1: seem to to like Calcutta as much as I like Bombay. Right. I'm really tempted to take this conversation down the path of learning why you hate Calcutta so much. And maybe we should do a separate podcast about that. But you haven't mentioned this in your notes, uh, Adish, but another thing that I really enjoyed uh, while reading the book was the setting and how important the Taj Mahal Hotel was to this particular story. And I'm going to go on a tangent to a tangent reference right now. But every time I think about the Taj Mahal Hotel and I think about works of fiction, I'm always reminded of this movie called uh, Choti Si Baat.
0: How's that?
1: Because there is a scene where uh, Amol Palekar and I forget the name of the heroine. S- sorry, Amol Palekar is sitting there daydreaming about going on a date to the Taj Mahal hotel with the heroine. But unfortunately, he's there with uh, a friend of his, a male friend of his, who very quickly disabuses him of the idea that this is anything even remotely approaching a date. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting how, you, if you want to depict Bombay uh, in the 60s and the 70s, you really want to show the old part of town, Bandra and southwards, rather than anything else. I spent four years of my life in Bombay, but they were in Andheri and Santa Cruz. So my impression of Bombay is very, very different from the impression of Bombay that you might get by reading this particular novel. And like I said, the Taj seems to be the focal point of culture and high society in Bombay at that point of time. And maybe to a lesser extent even today.
0: Well, I can't say what high society is up to in Bombay <laughs> either today or in the past never having interacted with Bombay high society. Um, but say why not? It.
1: And if I may be allowed a tangent to a tangent, the other reason I like uh, Chhoti si Baat so much is because that story contains a... Subplot is touching it, but that story has references to the secret life of Walter Mitty. And high points to anybody who is able to pull in the secret life of Walter Mitty in a Bollywood movie.
2: Really? That's that's, that's pretty cool. I had no idea.
1: Yeah, that is. So, if you're familiar with the short story and if you watch Choti Si Baat, you can't help but pick up on the references. It's really well done.
2: I haven't seen uh, Choti Si Baat for many, many, many years. So, I should probably... <laughs> I should go it at some point.
1: So coming back to the book that we're talking about right now, A Murder on Malabar Hill, we've actually spoken about everything except for the murders themselves. So without revealing too much of the plot, this, if you can explain why of all the things that all of us noticed about the book, why you thought the murder mystery was your favorite part?
0: Possibly because I was coming to a murder mystery after a very long time. This is very much in the vein of old-style 1940s, 1950s, uh, Agatha Christie-type murder mysteries. Mm -hmm. And it was very well well done as those go. It did have the usual murder mystery beats of dropping the clues and letting you work it out for yourself if you were very uh, interested in doing that, Mm -hmm. but also scattering enough red herrings that you wouldn't get it right away.
1: So, uh, Neha, perhaps I'm curious to hear your opinion about this. Adish and I have spoken in the past on multiple episodes about how uh, detectives usually come and perhaps need to come on stage with a sidekick. But this is one of those rare books where the sidekick doesn't actually materialize. You can make the argument that Alice uh, is somewhat of a sidekick, but she really isn't Mm -hmm. as crucial to moving the story forward as some of the other sidekicks have been. So, for example, Poirot Without Hastings... Or Sherlock without Watson is just difficult to imagine, but this mm-hmm. is a book where that sidekick doesn't make an appearance.
2: Yeah, I think I think that's uh, I think that's right. It, it, this is actually now that you pointed out, this is the first time that I'm uh, that I'm focusing on this aspect. But this was a very well uh, written novel. Like completely, I I completely agree with everything that that uh, that Adish said. You don't quite know what's coming because well pretty much everybody could be a suspect and yeah I think I think fairly well done
0: but if I can push back a little on the idea that there's no sidekick Mm -hmm. I feel it's more like that there are multiple sidekicks she has I don't remember is it the law office's security guard or the clerk who is helping her out at some point
1: the security guard yes
0: she uh, as you mentioned uh, she, she has her friend from Oxford Alice, Alice who has moved from England to Mumbai because her father is a senior member of the Bombay presidency g- government so the, we have this uh, young English lady who's coming over and helping Par- Parveen Mistry at different points in the book one of the young daughters who uh, who is in the house where where the murder has taken place is also ends up being oh, yeah. a sidekick at some point great, so great. you're correct that there is no there's no sidekick narrator who is hanging around parveen at all times but the dynamic that there is someone whom parveen is speaking to bouncing ideas off Uh, relying on for physical help stays for quite a lot uh, lot of the time.
1: Yeah, that's a good point.
0: And and I think one uh, function which a sidekick fulfills in the murder mystery is that the detective and the sidekick uh, uh, go off and investigate in different places with very different worldviews. And I think that aspect was uh, done by Alice in this book
1: yeah you also mentioned that you'd like to see what happens to Alice next as well and that's an interesting thing to take up off on uh, it would be nice to find out if Alice has further adventures in India or maybe in other parts of the British Empire she, the she, is she,
0: she was a very interesting character and uh, I've read the uh, first sequel to this book by now which is called the uh, Sethapur Moonstone but mm-hmm. Alice is not quite that active in that book so I haven't really got my wish okay
2: yeah is she is she active at all i, I don't she, remember her. she
0: she's oh. there but she's there but she uh, she mostly is there in the beginning where she sets up a meeting between Paveen Mystery and her father in government which sets off the uh, yes. rest, rest of the plot but she doesn't accompany Parveen to uh, Satapur and uh, we I don't think we even see uh, Parveen and Alice being reunited in Mumbai the, the, no, book close, the book closes before that
2: yeah yeah we don't
1: I haven't read the sequel but as is rapidly becoming tradition on these episodes I'll make a note and add the book to the must read list eventually <laughs> one day
2: you should you should read it yourself too it's uh, it's quite nice
1: i will i will hopefully okay uh, neha i don't mean to put you on the spot at all but uh, you joining this episode as a lawyer reminds me of <laughs> neil degrasse tyson being asked to rate interstellar in terms of factual accuracy and like i said i don't mean to put you on the spot at all but if you could reprise that same sort of role and tell us if there are any glaring legal errors that we should be wary of while reading the book.
2: My gosh, you're actually asking <laughs> me to remember family law, which is, uh, <laughs> which I am, uh, which I was actually fairly good at in law school, but I'm, I I have zero idea about. Uh, uh, like I said, I
1: don't mean to put you on the spot at all, but, but. In fact, if you can't think of uh, a glaring error, then that itself is indicated that there probably isn't.
2: Yeah, actually, come to think of it, they have um, they've picked, she's picked up on I think a lot of the big issues fairly well. I can't I honestly can't comment. I don't know if um, at the time uh, in the 1920s when the book is set, whether uh, uh, whether the thing with Indian personal law is, uh, especially now, is that every religious community follows its own personal law. We don't have a uniform um, civil, code. civil code just, just yet. I, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole. But um, Dear I actually don't know whether it's historically accurate that uh, at the time when the book is set, whether uh, Parsi women were allowed, uh, what, what were the grounds for divorce? and whether uh, but i'm but i'm assuming it's it's accurate because it just sounds very very believable and it sounds very plausible she's also picked up on a lot of these other concepts i think she talks about meher she talks about how the property is supposed to be divided between the widows of malabar hill as they are called i think she's picked up on the big issues i don't see also the The murder mystery itself being a convoluted sort of legal subject, I don't think there is, but again, it's been a while since I I read the book, but I don't think there are complicated questions of law that they discuss there at all. And on her character itself, again, I imagine fairly accurate. Women in the 1920s not being allowed to appear in court, which is why she's only a solicitor. She's not a barrister, as you would say. She can't argue. Seems fairly accurate
0: probably a good time to mention to anyone who's listening and who hasn't read the book that the case which Paveen mystery takes up is not a murder it's a case of inheritance yeah. in a Muslim family after the husband dies and leaves three widows and the murder happens thereafter so it, it starts off with a question of family law and inheritance and only pe- turns into a murder mystery about i think two or three chapters once she actually visits the these three widows yeah
1: Yeah. i just realized in fact as uh, we were talking that at least to my mind and perhaps uh, neha and adish both of you can uh, point out books that don't meet what i'm about to say but there are very few writers who can actually make the legal profession truly interesting from a fiction point of view so not all but some grisham novels i thoroughly enjoyed reading but there aren't that many authors in terms of paperback fiction who have done a good job in terms of making the legal profession genuinely interesting. And this is, to my mind at least, one you know, of the few books that falls into that category.
2: It's been a really long time since I read legal fiction novels. Grisham may honestly have been the last of them. And i the, the last time I probably read Grisham was when I was a teenager. So it's been a really long time. Yeah, yeah, I think I just graduated to watching legal dramas, legal TV shows, and yeah, a, a, a good legal novel. I can't remember the last time I read one, actually.
0: Adis? I think just like Neha, I have not read Grisham cover to cover since I was a teen. And I, unlike her, I don't even have the advantage of having seen uh, legal TV dramas. <laughs>
2: Oh, really? Maybe that was a law school specific thing because we inhaled um, Boston Legal and the practice. And then eventually that was The Good Wife. And as of three days ago, I have started watching The Good Fight. It's the sequel to The Good Wife. So, yeah.
0: I'm currently watching Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, which is tangentially about a law firm. <laughs>
2: I don't yeah. think that counts but uh, <laughs> but good points for try.
1: Yeah, I I watched some episodes of The Boston Legal but never got hooked. But I thoroughly enjoyed watching the West Wing which is tangentially if you think about it about law making if not about the practice of law itself.
2: West Wing was amazing. Yes, yes of course.
1: Totally but that's
2: was. a political show. Exactly. Political yeah. It's
1: more about the practice of oh, sorry, the process of making the law rather than implementing yeah. it. Okay, I also uh, watched, sorry, go ahead
2: Nia. Nothing, I just also suddenly remember that I watched Suits, which I did not enjoy at all. So, <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, I watched the first season, but couldn't get myself to watch more than that.
2: You, wise choice, let's just
1: say. <laughs> all right, uh, I'm about to... Unless, uh, Neha and do you have anything to speak about where the first book is concerned, should we move on to Milk Teeth? Yes, let's. Great. So, uh, one of my favorite critics of movie critics of all time was this guy called Roger Ebert. And one of his dictums when it came to watching movies used to be, don't ask what a movie is about, ask how a movie is about whatever it is about. So, one way of understanding that is to think of the murder on Malabar Hill as not being about a murder per se. But also through that process, understanding Bombay and the communities who were a part of Bombay at that point of time. And that's a nice segue to speak about the second book, because it really is, again, about the so-called maximum city, which, by the way, is a book I'm not sure whether I like or not. I'm talking about Suketu Mehta's book. A lot of things to glean from that book, but books based on Bombay, I don't know that I've really read a book that made me thoroughly enjoy learning more about the city. I haven't read milk tea. Both of you seem to have. Is it a good description of the city, even if
0: it is at a particular point of time? It's set specifically in Mahim, mm-hmm. which is it's where...
2: Set ma- it's in Matungaj.
0: Close enough. With, <laughs> but, uh, okay, I, I mentioned that because uh, that's where Shivani, my wife, is from. And she thought mm-hmm. it was absolutely accurate.
2: I don't quite know what you're looking for, Ashish. But if you're looking for accuracy, if you're looking for, I think even relatability, I think she's done that very well. One of the things that really appealed to me about Milk Teeth and its description of life in Bombay was that she's was was the touch of familiarity that went with it. Um, you know, there are there are these themes that have that have been a part of my life as well because they've been a part of like my family's life. Ancient buildings being redeveloped, descriptions of ancient buildings, the different communities that you see in Bombay sort of living together. You have your Konkanis, you have your Gujaratis, she talks about the South Indians, she means Tamilians, I mean, she refers to them interchangeably, South Indians, Tamilians at different points of time. You know, you you have Marathi being a fairly constant theme in, in in that there are different phrases, you have your different characters speaking to different, uh, interacting with the city in different ways, using Marathi, things like that. Um, I I think she's done it. I think she's done it. Honestly, she's done it fairly well. In the 1990s, 97, I think, is when the book is set in. Even how she moves from Matunga to forward to describing the architecture, life in Bombay, I actually found it very enjoyable. Also because it was relatable. So I, I don't know, maybe it's a chicken and the egg. I, I I, don't know if I enjoyed it because it was relatable or vice versa. But yeah.
0: We've spoken a few episodes ago about how relatability and accuracy are two different things. But yeah. I, exactly. I think yes. I, as far as I can see, this was both. I was just about to say, uh, it's more about,
1: my question was more about relatability than it was about accuracy. So I was uh, in Ruparel in my junior college in 1998-1999, so I really should be reading this book. But as you said, Neha, the evocativeness is something that I would really want to experience if I'm reading a book set in that part of town during that uh, era. So Kabutar Khana, Shiv Sena Bhavan, the area around Mahim and Matunga, if I can read this book and recreate my understanding of that time, that would be fantastic. And it seems that she has delivered this in spades.
2: Yeah, I think so. She doesn't talk too much about the landmarks, to be honest. She talks about the restaurants around King's Circle. She talks about life around the railway stations, you have your chaotic markets and traffic and pedestrians sort of all vying for space on the road. There's a passing reference. IIT Bombay is not named, but I mean, you can you can imagine that she's talking about IIT Bombay. I think landmarks by name, interestingly, are are the ones that pop up in Nariman Point. One of the protagonists, his office is in the Oberoi. Star <laughs> Isn't it the Oberoi?
0: If... If I, I if I've understood it right, it's in Express. Uh, uh, oh, yeah, it is in uh, the Oberoi, and it's set to move. Uh, and I think hers is in Express Towers, perhaps. Uh,
2: something, or, something like that.
0: Uh, or, or actually, or perhaps he moves yes, from the Oberoi to Express Towers, the, which is next door.
2: Which is next door, exactly. So um, the, these are actually the landmarks uh, by, by, by that pop up by name. But if, if you're looking for like a, a, a generic sense of life in Bombay and will you have pictures in your imagination, I, I think I think you will.
1: Okay. And before I forget, I just remembered when you spoke about she referring to South Indians and when she said South Indians, she meant Tamilians. I couldn't help but remember uh, Anna Wadi in this book called uh, Behind the Beautiful Forevers. I don't know if you've read it by Catherine Boo.
2: Yes, by Catherine Boo. Oh my God, that was a lovely book. What
1: a magnificent book.
2: That was a really, really nice book. I think that was one of the few books about I I didn't enjoy Maximum City, actually.
1: Um, Exactly, same here. I can't understand whether
2: I liked it or not. I, I didn't enjoy it at all. The other book that is uh, referential to Bombay that I did not enjoy at all is from uh, Dongri to Dubai. just did not like it.
1: Oh yeah, this is uh, the same guy who wrote uh, Black Friday, no? I think so. S. Yeah. Hussein Zaidi, I think. Yeah.
2: yeah. Yeah.
1: Black Friday, I enjoyed reading the novel, but that was more because of the historical importance of the novel.
2: Sure. Sure. Sure.
1: But yeah, and now that, so, Behind the Beautiful Forever is, is a, I, I love to recommend that book to anybody who says they want to understand Bombay better.
2: I agree. I, I love that book. I was very moved by it.
1: Exactly. And I realized halfway through the book that it is not fiction, which is when it becomes all the more powerful. Yeah. All right. Uh, Adish, coming back to this book, uh, you've mentioned about how the book is, in a sense, really about building redevelopment and therefore about land in Bombay. Now, Neha, you should be warned, both Adish and I tend to become monsters who just don't give up or seed space when we start talking about urbanization. And there's every chance (laughs) of this degenerating or developing. You can use whatever word you want into one of those conversations. But I found it fascinating, Arthus, that you would not be interested in building redevelopment and Bombay because, I mean, given our liking for the subject, isn't it likely to be the case that we'd be fascinated by it?
0: It's not so much a question of me being fascinated by it or not. It just seems to cast this shadow on the lives of the characters. And I felt that I would have preferred a book where... The shadow wasn't as dark, and I also feel that people who are from Mumbai relate to this very much, and because of this, find Milk Teeth a much better book than I find it. But perhaps I'm just being commercially.
1: <laughs> You've used this uh, word in your blog post as well, but. I don't think so. It's not like I'm defending you, but you need to have stayed in a Bombay apartment uh, to really experience the need to think about redevelopment and the chance of getting a slightly higher amount of square footage.
0: So I have stayed in a uh, Bombay apartment uh, with relatives for about six months, and this was a redeveloped apartment. Mm -hmm. So I've seen it in the post rather than the pre which is not a complete perspective but I have a little bit of that perspective but I also feel that it casts a very big shadow on Mumbai rightfully so but it's not a shadow that I can empathize with or relate to as much as someone who lives there all the time and I think that's going to create a divide People who are not from Mumbai will think that it's a good book. People who are are from Mumbai will think it's a great book. <laughs> okay.
2: Yeah, I think, I, think I, 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 I actually get that because I have the opposite experience. I've seen when it comes to my family, we're still very much in like the pre redevelopment states. And I feel like my grandfather is one of the... Uh, is is like one of the characters in the book who's making sure that everybody in the society gets a fair deal etc cetera, etc cetera, or at least he wants to be that guy and he's been he's full of stories about how he's prevented his society from from getting a raw deal by, by the builders and developers and not being cheated by them and things like that. So I, I definitely relate to it much more on a personal level. And interestingly, maybe again, because it's the experiential bias, but those are the parts that I enjoyed, honestly, much more in the book. I don't think she dealt with it enough. I wish she had written much more about it. I'd have been very happy just reading a book about like redevelopment in Bombay, honestly. I thought some of the other drama of the other characters was a little bit distracting, quite honestly. But yeah.
1: Speaking of which, Adish, you mentioned that you got reminded of Rama Bijapurka's book, We Are Like This Only. I think I read this book more than 15 years ago, but I'm this must have slipped my mind completely. I didn't quite understand how Indian feminism in that book, Rama Bijapurka's book, relates to what you read about in this particular book, Milk Teeth. Would you mind explaining for the audience the connect between the
0: two? Professor Rama Bijapurkar is a marketing professor at I.M. Ahmedabad. Mm-hmm. And her book, We Are Like This Only, was a study of Indian consumer behavior at that time. Right. Now, she had a chapter in that um, book which said that as far as Indian women are concerned, uh, uh, are concerned as consumers, uh, this is where, as the head of a household purchasing decision, where they really have a lot of uh, uh, autonomy, whereas if you talk about Indian women choosing their careers or choosing whom to marry, etc., etc., the traditional markers of feminism, it's not as widespread in India. But even a woman in a traditional household, once she is in the household, as the decision maker on what the household buys, she ends up having quite a bit of decision making power, autonomy, or uh, I I don't know what the correct word is for this. And this is something which I saw play out in the fiction of milk, Milk Teeth also. Hmm. Okay. I, 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 do, I don't know if Neha would agree with that or not.
2: I don't think it's central to the book by any means. But yeah, definitely one of the themes that did emerge.
0: I've forgotten the name of the auntie who is uh, Ira's mother-in-law-to-be. But she really exemplified this. Kusum.
2: Kusum Kini, kartik's mother.
0: Yeah.
1: Okay, like I said, uh, I need to read both books this one for the first time and reread uh, Ramabija Guru's And the next point that you made in your uh, blog post, Adist, is to me indicative of how we are not all that old. Because I certainly can't imagine an era where you didn't have your own salary account the minute you got a job. But maybe it was not a thing in 1996. Who knows? Uh,
0: to, to give context to our listeners, uh, Milk Teeth has one small segment uh, where. The protagonist, Ira, who is working as a journalist, gets her salary and she receives her salary in cash, gives it to her mother. Her mother takes out some aspect for running the house, gives the rest to her father and her father deposits it into a bank account. And Ira does not have any clue about her own bank account. And for you and I, who have started our first jobs with a salary account set up for us by our employers this is so foreign and i really don't know did amrita mahale make it up to make a point or was this actually something in 1996 where you would not get a bank account set up by your employer
1: it's worth asking people of a certain age and it'll be nice to be the younger one asking the question for (laughs) a (laughs) change
2: Yeah, I think I, I think I'll ask my parents. How how did you get your salary? Uh, maybe at least check. I'm pretty sure they got a check that they had to deposit. Yeah. Cash
1: yes, sounds yeah exactly correct.
2: Little little bizarre. Maybe your demand draft or a check or something. I don't know. I will I will find out.
0: <laughs> I uh, honestly I don't remember uh, if it was cash itself, but she was getting some form of uh, paper instrument which she was handing over to her father.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: Or, or, or her parents.
1: Yeah, yeah. I know people even today, by the way, when I say today, I mean literally in the last two, three years, who get part of their salary in cash and part of their salary in their bank account. But that's because they work in a sector where there's a lot of black money floating around. So maybe, maybe, I don't know. I haven't read the books, I'm guessing. But maybe that was the case.
2: No, uh, well, she's a journalist.
1: Oh, okay.
0: So if it was the case, it was... Uh, not even hinted at that this was the case.
1: Okay. Yeah. I loved, uh, so moving on to the next bullet point, I absolutely loved the phrase one coat of paint people. And when I say I loved it, please don't misunderstand me. It's not as if I think it's an accurate description, but it's just a very evocative one. And at least to people of a certain age from India, it's self explanatory.
0: Uh, But Ashish, I think uh, you should explain it for all those people who are not of that uh, certain age.
1: (laughs) I'll give it a try. And who knows, maybe I'll be putting my foot in my mouth because the interpretation I have of the phrase is, people who live in houses where you can't afford more than one coat of paint on the walls. And that's obviously a limitation of whatever your budget is for getting your house done up. Am I on the right track or...
0: Uh, you're, you're on the right track and it's expanded uh, in this book where uh, it's uh, it's also said that they're not just uh, that their houses are one coat of paint, it's mm-hmm. that these people have one coat of paint of modernity or of being stylish, which can wash away uh, in the monsoon.
1: It takes me back. And very powerfully, very evocatively, back to when I used to live in Bombay in the 1990s. And it's amazing how quickly houses have changed since uh, then. So, for example, things that we take for granted these days, windows that uh, don't open up, but windows that you can slide, slide, or to say the fact that you don't have fully working boiler or geyser in the bathroom, but one of those running water type geysers. But the kind of things that you almost expected in homes in the 1990s, it's changed very, very rapidly in India. Is that something that uh, both of you have also experienced about how quickly stuff that we take for granted in the homes that we stay in has changed over the last 20 to 25 years?
0: Well, I've spent about uh, six or seven years of the last uh, uh, 10 or 12 years in Kanchipuram. And mm-hmm. I think that the change is has happened in 10 years and not just 25 over very there. Hard.
2: I don't know. Do you do you mean along the lines of aspects of modernity or convenience? Because there are some of those I could do without. Honestly, I'm happier with the windows that open up than the sliding windows. I don't like <laughs> that at all. I just you, you lose so, half the window, so no. Some of those I can do. But, uh,
0: so I'm fine with windows either opening up or sliding as long <laughs> as they're as long as they're with the PVC that. Uh, and not the wood that keeps expanding and contracting with the seasons. <laughs> true. True.
2: Yeah. My, my house in Delhi is uh, is extremely old. I think it's, uh, I don't know, maybe 1960s, 1970s. I don't know if my, my landlord is to be believed. Uh, his now daughters who must be in their late 30s, early 40s, maybe uh, grew up and were born and bred in that house. Um, so my doors also do this actually because it's so old. Um, in in the winter, in the monsoon, in Delhi, they tend to bloat up, and then I have a hard time closing my yes. my main door. So yeah.
1: And there's a very fine line between the charm and the nostalgia associated with old homes and furnitures and fitments, and irritation with how things just don't work the way they are supposed to.
2: Yeah, in some cases, I wish we'd get to modernity faster. Like central heating, I would very much appreciate living in Delhi. <laughs> just, you know, hot water <laughs> when I have to take a shower on a cold winter morning in Delhi. Even that huge geezer that is in the bathroom is not enough. Then <laughs> you yeah. just, I, I want to...
1: Uh, a shower, just brushing your teeth in the middle of the Delhi winter is an excruciating process. It is, it is very
2: painful.
0: <laughs> The book that, uh, pooping, um, pooping in the Delhi winter is an excruciating uh, process because uh, <laughs> the, the floor is so cold.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, floor is cold, you have heaters, like it's, it's, it's quite something. And you can't run uh, too many heaters in the geyser at the same time because you're, you'll, you'll end up tripping your mains and then, yeah, yeah. it is.
1: weirdly the book that comes to mind when I think of 80s the kind of home or uh, facility that I have in mind is a book called uh, English August by Upamanyu Chatterjee
0: it's been a long long time since I've read that
1: it's been eternity since I've read that I'm tempted to go back and read it but the description of that guest house is exactly what I have in mind when I think of old homes that have the kind of ambience that I suppose we are talking about. But anyways, to come back to the book that uh, we are trying to talk about right now, minus uh, all the tangents, you also speak about not just Holmes during that particular era, Adish, you also speak about behavior in the 1990s. So I'm going to read this out for the benefit of the audience. And I don't know the plot line, so uh, I'm not going to get into what the plot line was. But the sentence that I had in mind was, he was weak and wicked for not telling Ira the truth earlier on. But in 1996, how many people would have told anybody the truth? Without getting too much into the plot details, what was the larger point you're trying to make about how behavior
0: was different in the 1990s? I'm not sure I can get into this without uh, spoiling the plot. Maybe we'll come up with a way and end up doing yet another uh, pre-recording and uh, splicing in.
1: <laughs> uh, <laughs> For the benefit of the audience, that's an in-joke that you're not going to get. but just let's
0: just ignore that for the moment the book is about two people karthik and ira who have grown up in the same apartment building together mm-hmm. ira is a journalist karthik is someone who has uh, though they're not named has gone to iit and IIM and is now working in a large consultancy firm so he is so to speak one of those uh, cliches whom people make fun of on twitter uh, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Ira used to have a childhood crush on Karthik, which was not uh, reciprocated. And after all his time away, first in college, then at B school, Karthik comes back to Mumbai, moves back into his old family house, which everyone is trying to redevelop, mm-hmm. and ends up getting engaged to Ira in an arranged marriage uh, uh, setting. And in the last bit of the book, we see Karthik making frantic attempts to get out of this engagement and not actually telling Ira that he wants to end the engagement or why he wants to end the engagement. And the way he finally manages this is uh, something which completely ruins Ira's reputation within the apartment building and all her neighbors.
1: Wow, there's a lot going on in this book.
2: There's a lot.
0: What Karthik does in this third part of the book, which completely shatters Ira's reputation and makes life very difficult for her, is appalling behavior. And despite that, the way uh, Amrita Mahaleb has written the book, you end up feeling sorry for Karthik rather than angry at him. I don't know if Neha shared that feeling or not because every reader will obviously take something different away from the book. And what this reminded me a lot of is, uh, again, coming back to the TV, uh, which we've been watching recently, I've been watching Sex Education on Netflix. And that is also a series which is, I think, fantastic at making you feel sympathy for really terrible people.
2: (laughs) Wow, I should I should wash it. But no, I, d- I don't share your sympathy for Karthik. I was just annoyed. I found him to be a very annoying character. I feel this happening to me. Um, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I feel this. Uh, this won't be the first uh, male character in a book that has ended up annoying me, is, I think, <laughs> a kind way to put it. by <laughs> sure. the end of the book, I was just I was done with Karthik.
0: My experience was, I wasn't that annoyed with him for the first third of the book, which is depicting his childhood. I was alarmed at him in the last third and aghast at him at the end. <laughs> and and despite being aghast, I was still sorry for him.
2: Yeah, no, I just, I wasn't sorry. I, 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 I really liked the first part of the book, actually. I really enjoyed this story as children. Um you know uh, it's a it's a very uh, it's a very nice take again extremely relatable on a male female friendship when you're growing up how how it tends to change there's a certain age when i i don't know if it happened to you guys but there's a certain age when the the boys and girls just stopped playing together and yeah, then yeah. typically the older boys went off to play like cricket and things like that and then you had this like um you know, everybody went from playing things like lock and key and chore police together to now having like separate groups. And uh, there's a there's a very, um, there's a I don't know, it was I think for me, it was class seven ish, maybe about when I when I distinctly remember this kind of sort of sort of split happening. So um, very, uh, I, I, I really enjoyed it. I loved the way she talked about uh, the two of them being friends uh, in, in the first half of the book but then the minute he became an adult he just really started to piss me off
1: Although if you want to end on a positive note where the point that you just made uh, Neha is to be spoken about I just literally before we started this call uh, was reading Calvin and Hobbes to my daughter and oh we, just my a... <laughs> we just reached the part where Calvin meets Susie Durkins for the first time and uh, it was I found it impossible to explain to her why, if he actually likes her, is he so angry towards her. So I'm at the other end of the spectrum right now. My God.
0: But, Ashish, that's amazing. You're right at the beginning. Uh, You uh, you and your daughter have so, so much to go.
1: Yes, I know. And I'm thoroughly looking forward to it. She's fallen in love with the comics, as she should, as anybody would. But yeah, I have some very pleasant days or months ahead of me
2: yeah i think i i think you do i think you do
0: one could even say that your days will just be packed
1: (laughs) (laughs) what a wonderful reference well played adish well played
2: the other book that i've really enjoyed about the male-female friendship dynamic and how it evolves um not unlike in this one, is Sally Rooney's Normal People. I don't know if either of you haven't read it. I would I would definitely recommend that you do. Completely different writing style, just um, very interesting use of imagery, very different from the way Mahale does it, but uh, quite, quite enjoyable nonetheless.
0: I haven't read it yet, and if there's something which... I could recommend that has its own take on this. It's a book by Charlie Jane Anders called All the Birds in the Sky.
2: I will check it out.
1: As will I. So, this uh, is in a sense a historic episode because although I thoroughly enjoyed the discussion that we've had right now, I'm not really tempted to read Milk Teeth per se, but I'm thoroughly enjoying the additional references that we are ending <laughs> up speaking about. And not a criticism of the book I haven't read it but I don't know I just don't feel like reading it on the basis of all of what we've spoken about it seems too complicated a book to take on right now what no it's
2: like <laughs> it's a day's read <laughs> it's nothing complicated
1: oh for some reason given all of what we spoke about I thought this would easily be seven eight hundred pages old no no it's it's, like the... it,
0: it, it's, one, it's one of those fantastic book which packs in a lot in very few words
1: Huh. Yeah. Just when I thought I could get away by not adding a book to the list we are back to square one.
2: <laughs> oh no, you should you should read it for sure. I personally found it to be a lot of uh, some of it to be distracting. Like I think some plot elements could have been removed and you would have still had a fairly great book. It does pack in a lot.
1: One final point before we wind up for today. And Adish, you've written the post, but Neha, I'm going to ask you this question. Adish speaks of things which are cliches, but which nobody is ready yet to accept as cliches. And he speaks about the Irani cafe darshini dichotomy.
2: <laughs>
1: what is going on over here?
2: So... Uh, in descriptions of the city there are uh, restaurants that uh, there's also the chai tapri by the way and then there's the 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 other sort of dichotomy is your chai tapri and your uh, fancy coffee shop in your uh, posh five star hotel it's basically well you have descriptions of eating joints around the city that tend to play at different mm-hmm. points of time a centralish role in the lives of the characters because important conversations take place there or sometimes they're just elements that she's added in to I suppose talk about the charm of Bombay but mm-hmm. you have different characters feel a sense of belonging or fondness for each of these different uh, different points like Ira is a coffee drinker so she frequents the 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 Darshini which is run by Kartik the other protagonist's family and mm-hmm. you know, she's uh, she's very fond of her filter coffee uh, in contrast there's another character who's a, who's a tea drinker and uh, there's this really nice scene I think somewhere in the third part of the book when Ira and Karthik are sitting down to have a cup of coffee. They're meeting in the coffee shop where his office is so I think this is the Oberoi. It's a nice little contrast because there's one cup of coffee for 100 bucks and in I think the middle of the book somewhere there's there's a lot of scenes where um, she's she's finished uh, larger meals for less than 100 bucks. Well, I mean, it is a cliche, no, the Irani chai and the South Indian, the, like Darshini in Bombay is a cliche, as is the chai tapri, I suppose. So, yeah. yeah, I don't quite know what you had in mind, Adish, when you when you wrote it, but
0: uh, no, what I had in yeah. mind is that there's this contrast pointed out, which is that at an Irani cafe, you come in and you can sit as long as you like. Whereas at a Darshini, you're given your food very quickly and hustled out right after you finish so that uh, somebody else can take your place Mm -hmm. and it's true but I think what Amrita Mahale does very well is to point out that this is something which sounds profound and therefore lots of people mention it but it's been (laughs) but it's been made it's been it's now been made profound uh, to the point of cliche and I think she's one of the first people to say that, yes, this is a cliche and it's no longer that profound.
1: (laughs) Okay. All right. Adarsh, I have a challenge for you. The next episode, uh, we should A, not speak about urbanization, B, not speak about coffee, and C, then make the episode last for more than 20 minutes. (laughs) Because seriously, I don't think we've managed an episode without talking about urbanization or coffee. And the perfect episode, such as this one, includes both.
0: Considering the reading list that we've been sending to each other uh, in the last uh, couple of weeks, I think doing that the next episode is going to be a massive challenge. (laughs) True,
1: true. But what are we, if not people who challenge ourselves?
0: Of course, of course. All right. All right.
1: Unless uh, Neha or Adish, you have anything to, anything to add? I think we can safely wrap this one up.
0: I'm all done.
2: I'm all done too. This Wait. was fun. Thank you for having me, both of you.
0: Thank, hey, me. thank, thank you. This was a blast. <laughs>
2: this was is, this is quite fun. I have lots of books I need, to, I need to get back to start reading now.
0: Yeah. And we started this episode with Good Afternoon. We're ending it with Good Night, which is again one of our in-jokes about having to re-record. But good night, everybody. And I hope we do this again soon. Absolutely.
2: (laughs) Yes, looking forward to it. Bye, guys. Thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. Thank you. Good night.
1: Good night. You've been listening to That Reminds Me, episode 4. Today's conversation was between Neha Chaudhary, Ashish Kulkarni, and Adish Khanna. You can find Neha on Twitter where her handle is at Neha Chaudhary that's at the rate N-E-H-A-A-C-H-A-U-D-H-A-R-I Ashish's blog is econforeverybody.com and Adish's blog is adish.net that's A-A-D-I-S-H-T dot N-E-T
0: That Reminds Me is a podcast produced by Ashish Polkarti and Adish Khanna You can find all episodes of this podcast at thatreminds.me we leave your comments. You can also email us. Our address is feedback at thatreminds.me. The podcast is supported in part by a grant from Emergent Ventures. The show music is The Carnival of the Animals, performed by the Seattle Youth Symphony, courtesy musopen at musopen.org.